Okay, I'm recording. Any last words before starting? Uh, I'm recording and now keeping this. So, oh, okay. So it is just for now. Let's go. Uh, goodbye, guys. Okay, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Pines and Science. How are we all feeling tonight? Woo! And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez, and, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Hello, and welcome to episode number. 25. 25. I knew it was 20 something. <laughs> I'm on top of this. <laughs> yes, yes, I can see that. We have a special episode for you guys today. We're going to give you a sip of science. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. You have already heard our introduction that mm -hmm. was not made in this fancy studio that we have. The fanciest studio that everybody can buy. Completely protected from noises by trucks and mm -hmm. planes. Mm -hmm. Of course. We never hear planes on this show. Never. That is an irony. <laughs> but yes, we're going to give you so obviously we're talking about pint of science today, but we're giving you a sip of science, giving you a little snippet of each speaker, an interview with them, um, our comments about their talks, which I must say, there's a lot of very positive feedback, I must say. But just to put a bit into perspective, just mm -hmm. it would be good to remember to everyone that uh, we have the Pint of Science Festival last week. We did. Worldwide. Mm. And it is uh, increasing popularity in many countries in the world. So many countries. And uh, we were honored that the scientist, Kirsten and myself, were invited to MC a couple of the shows in Sydney. And it was so much fun. So much fun. Yes, it was very, very entertaining and we learned plenty of things, particularly on our first uh, show together that yes. I don't remember a thing about that one. All, all about the quantum world. Honestly, ah, I have yes, to say, I, I still don't know anything about quantum computers. That was the quantum one, yeah, because I also was doing the MC of the very first event on Monday, and that was about proteins and something else that I can't remember anymore. Diabetes? But diabetes, yes, yeah. that's right. And, and um, it was actually quite interesting. <laughs> but the main event that we were really looking for... Is, of course, the space and astronomy one. Yes. Of course. Enter the dead star. Oh, it's just... Oh, I still get chills. Yes, so it was actually the one that caught the majority of the attention. We have mm -hmm. plenty of people there and even mm -hmm. more, more... oversold out. More people that they were just coming, trying to... Can, can please, we go, we would like to, but it was all out. Mm. And well, we were able to squeeze them in. So, yes, yeah, so we may as well get started. So enjoy some of our recordings. We'll be back to give a bit of a comment about what we had, what we did, what we heard, and what we learned. But there is something else that I would like to mention before we go with the recording. It is that we did it with my mobile phone. Yes. So the quality, as you probably have already noticed, it is not as good as we try to achieve. I'm quite impressed still, I must say. Definitely. When we are thinking about the old times that it was almost impossible of just getting all the mixer, the good microphones and mm. all of that. And now just using the mobile phone that I had in my hand mm -hmm. while we were talking in front of the microphone. And that worked relatively well. 
But still, I'm not sure how at the end the quality will be. I will try to minimize as much the noise as I can, but without mm -hmm. having a proper... A noise-reducing thing. A, a recording of the silence. Yes. It was impossible to record the silence mm. there. The other thing that is exactly what you have just said, that we are going to be including these commentaries from time to time, just mm -hmm. to give you a bit more better perspective of our thoughts, our impressions, and the excitement that we actually had. Yes. Okay. Here we go. Thank you. Thank you. We will be your MCs for tonight. And I'm sure as you notice, we are obviously the scientists. Astronomers should have been called scientists since the very first day of astronomy, obviously, because we literally study the sky. Yep, exactly. That is what we do. And did you see that I'm holding this phone because we are trying also to record a bit this for the podcast that we usually are releasing every two weeks. By the way, we have a podcast called The Scientists, if that was not clear. Okay, okay. Enough, <laughs> enough publicity. Let's go for the, for the real stuff. Yes. Well, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we meet here today. Uh, they are the original uh, holders of the land. I'd like to acknowledge them and pass on my acknowledgement to the elders past and present and through them to all Indigenous peoples of Australia, those who may be present here tonight and those not present here tonight as well. And for me, I would like to say quickly a couple of quick words about uh, the Pint of Science Festival, that it is increasing popularity worldwide. In the last few years, it has been just really, really crazy. I have a couple of maps here. Oh. So let's see. Do you mind? That is the map of the world with all the places where they are hosting vital science events tonight. <laughs> many, many, many countries, including particularly Europe and uh, Brazil, plenty of Brazil and um, the US, Canada, that's a, that's and a lot of also, points. yep, also plenty of pines. That is the one in Europe. I have to show the one in Europe because Spain, it is the country that is hosting the majority of the events, I mean, the most of the events. And of course, you're very proud. Yeah, of course, yeah, because I'm, my background is Spanish. But I'm an Aussie too, okay? Yeah? So I have the two of them. Also, I have to show the, the, the one in Australia. 19 cities. Yeah, go Australia! Woo! 19 cities. Just realize that only four years ago, there were only seven cities in Australia that were hosting Python Science. So. Nineteen, and that is increasing. So that is absolutely great. I just like to reiterate: we are here for pint of science. So make sure you grab a pint of science. Okay. Also, look, I wouldn't usually say this, but I've already had almost one. It's also my birthday today, so I want you. Yeah. I mean, I was holding the surprise for later. Too late. <laughs> So uh, make sure you have pint of science, if not for yourselves, for me. <laughs> okay, so make sure you drink up, enjoy the science, and we should onto the speaker. Onto the speaker. Onto the speaker. Mm -hmm. Our first speaker for tonight is Dr. Devika Kumar. She is a lecturer in astronomy and astrophysics at Macquarie University. And uh, wait a moment, because I have to say a couple of things about her, because I know her very well, because we are working in the same department. <laughs> Great. So she's a wonderful astronomer and doing an amazing job. So you will see all the amounts of animations and interesting things that she's going to be talking about. And imagine how important it is what she's doing that she has been recently the recipient of the very prestigious ARC JECRA Fellowship. That is, so she's just starting. And not only that, I'm also very proud of being surrounded by not one, not two, but three fantastic female astronomers, you are one, Devika is the second one, and Sarah, our second speaker, and particularly Devika 
She is right now one of the superstars of STEM by Science Technology Australia. So, wow. So we are very proud that we are having her here. And now, Christine again. Yes, yeah, so our superstar of STEM is going to be talking about the cosmic tango. Although I must say, I have... Uh, I've enjoyed talking about the dancing of stars or galaxies, as those may have heard uh, my TED talk a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> there was a romantic eternal dance choreographed by Gravity. You can, you're more than welcome to steal that if you like. <laughs> but um, just to, I like to humanise our speakers sometimes, and so our weird slash fun fact of Divika is she may be an astronomer, and she's not afraid of the dark, she's not afraid of, afraid of snakes, but she is afraid of raspberries. <laughs> I think we might need a follow-up question on that. Other few beers. Okay, but nonetheless, put it together for Tamika. Yeah. And what you see with the binaries um, orbiting each other is the spectrum of these stars, right? So you find the star spectrum as they move. You find a dip in the spectrum, and then you have a smaller dip in the spectrum. And the reason you actually have this is because you have the binary system, and you have them eclipsing around each other. So when the bright star is in front, uh, you have a total dip in light from the secondary star. You don't see the secondary star at all. And then when the small star is in front, there's only a small dip. So by studying the spectra of these stars, I can sort of tell that, okay, you know what? I know that these stars are in binary systems. So that's part of the background I want to give you, and now I'm going to take you to the journey of my own research in my cosmic tangle. So I started my astronomy journey when I was 13 years old. Most kids spend their life playing with the dolls and cars when they were growing up. I spent my childhood playing with sextants and toasters. Yeah, and you know that line that went twinkle, twinkle, little star? I think I took that too seriously, and I really wanted to know what they're made of. So I spent my whole life trying to understand what does a star make? We know that stars make elements. How do the stars make these elements? That's sort of been my question. And the way I've done that is by looking at um, uh, fossils. So you remember that first video I showed you of a sun-like star that's evolving? In its last phase of life, it opens itself to humans. For a very short time, so it's very rare, but during that short phase, I can tap into its chemical fingerprint, and I can understand not just what elements it makes, but how does it make the element. Like, what are the convection processes, what are the mixing processes, and so on. Now, in my quest to understand these elements, um, and mostly I do this looking at the Milky Way, using the BLT telescopes in Chile, I ended up finding that a lot of these stellar fossils are, uh, they look like butterflies. I mean, look at that. So here's a nice little wing for a butterfly. Here's another stellar butterfly. So I call these stellar butterflies, right? And I quickly realized that, wait a minute, you can't have a single star that is making something like a butterfly pattern. It has to be something different. So what we think happens is when the star is in its giant phase, it does an interaction and it gets into its binary system. That's what standard theories predict. My research, in fact, has shown that we've discovered a new class of evolution, which is stars don't have to terminate their lives at the very end. In fact, through a binary interaction, if they get 
too friendly and a little too early, they can actually terminate their lives early on. And that's sort of the thing we study. So here's a simulation by um, Thomas Richard and Ursula de Marco, where you see two stars in a binary system. They've both overstepped their Roche lobes, and they're sort of transferring matter from the giant star, which is the fossil, so to speak, to a white dwarf. But what's happening here is matter not only flowing through the Lagrangian point one, but through the other Lagrangian point as well. So what you see is a system like this. Two stars caught up in a tangle, matter flowing through this point, but matter also leaking outside and then forming a disk. Inside this disk sits the binary system. Now these, this is what theoretical models predict. I'm an observer. I like to make sure that my observations match my models. So me and my team, what we've done is we've looked at studying or imaging the disk around these stars through several techniques. Uh, one of it is called interferometry. It's trying to make a really, really large telescope, not by building a telescope that has a massive mirror, but by moving a telescope from one point to another and kind of mimicking a really large telescope. So you see, this is what theories predict, and this is what our observations show us. So we really do find that in this binary tangle that this, this star goes into, it does also form this sort of a disk. Now we find different other ways of imaging this disk. You know, here's another image of this disk. And you might wonder how I make a disk out of this. But um, what I'd like to say here is the star is not visible. You're only looking at the disk. So if you have a star there, you're looking at the disk pretty much edge on. And what you see here is pretty much the mid-plane of this disk. Now these kind of binary systems are very interesting because we think that um, typically we know that when stars are young, they can have a planet around it because planets come from formation of the accretion disk going into a planet. But we think that stars at this phase, because they also have a disk, the disk can break off because of gravitational instabilities and also make planets. So we're looking for planets around evolved stars, not just planets around sunlight stars. Okay? Now another interesting thing this binary tango is doing is, if I zoom into the disk and just look at the binary system, and a student of mine is doing his PhD on this, is that the second star, the star that is inheriting all the material from the main giant, has jets. So it's a bit like a black hole, but not. So what's happening here is, as the matter is swirling into the, into the second star, there's energy being radiated out. So it's a complex, complex system. So there's matter flowing from one star to another, there's jets arising from the second star, maybe even the formation of planets, and finally, most importantly, even the alteration of its chemistry. So we go through our lives thinking, oh, stars make all the elements. But in fact, a star like this, or a star in a system like this, probably doesn't, because the binarity kind of pollutes or stops the elements from being made. So in a system like this, it sort of becomes easily um, sort of a dance, but with a disk outside of it, okay? So what, what is the future of these systems? Well, the honest truth is we don't quite know. They can either go into becoming type 1a supernovae, where the white dwarf explodes, or they could both become white dwarfs and merge. 
and eventually produce gravitational wave at a much smaller uh, magnitude than the normal supermassive black hole merger. Wow. Isn't she such a great speaker? Uh, definitely she is. She is. I have seen her some few times already because it is not the very first event that I have invited her mm. to come because she is really engaging. She is. Everyone that I talked to was enthralled by her. And I loved the what she ended on. She ended on this really fantastic little morphed video of an artist's impression of two stars tangoing with each other, I guess you could say, overlaid onto a video from a movie of two people dancing. And it perfectly matched up. And apparently, she made that video that morning. I think that the movie was Dirty Dancing. I'm uh. not sure because it is too old for you. <laughs> and I have never paid attention to those kind of movies. Sorry, but it is uh, the, the actor. It is the same actor that Tarin Ghost. Patrick Spacey? No, Patrick Schwarzschild. No? Patrick Schwan, Uh, you know, we are losing listeners because we don't know his name. Uh, Let me me check it. Patrick Swatchy. How how do you say that? Yeah, Patrick Spacey. That's what I said. That's what you said? Yeah. I understood Patrick Spacey. Uh Uh-uh. Okay. (laughs) That's Kevin Spacey. I'm not very good with this. (laughs) So it is Patrick Spacey. And that was Dirty Dancing. Maybe I'm not as young as you think. Enough of these silly things. Uh, I think it was really great to have her in Python Science talking about her very own research Mm -hmm. and the very important contribution that she is doing to try to understand not only the evolution of double stars, but how elements are made. Mm. And And she started from the beginning as well. Like No matter what your background in astronomy was, or if, if you had no background in astronomy, Everyone could understand the logic of her talk. She started right at the beginning and then took you on that journey to actually understand what she does and the significance of what she does as well. It's just, it was all around fantastic. And I will also say that the images and animations that she was using in her presentation, they were really good and very much adequate to what she was talking about. Mm. I like it, perhaps because I also like to do it in that way in the way that uh, she was using a long video and she was able to explain what was happening in that long video. Mm. Just, uh, just talking over the just video, talking, it's fantastic. talking over there, exactly. So that was really, really good. In any case, we also had a short interview with her mm-hmm. and that is what we are going to listen right now. Yes, so enjoy the interview with Devika. So don't be nervous. The thing in the postcard, it is always improvising. Perfect. Sounds great. Yeah. Love it. Good? We all have fun. Good, good. Always. So, um, have you enjoyed it? Totally. Yeah, it was really, really good. And the energy was great. And you guys were awesome. So, no, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I think it was Mutual admiration. No, no, no. You really gave a fantastic, oh. amazing, wonderful. I don't have enough adjectives to describe the talk. Thank you, Anna. So, really, was, really. Really Made good. by a superstar. Oh, thank as, you. As we know, because you are a superstar of STEM. Oh, yeah. guys. And that is very important. And it's something that we have been stressing some few times in the podcast, how important it is that some personalities, some people, young mm. astronomers, mm. young scientists like you, women, yeah. that are talking mm. and defending what the amazing research that you are doing. So right. you are and doing that great role models. in oh, the spotlight. You really? know, I think I actually enjoyed making the talk for Pines of Science because honestly, I didn't have that tango scene with the simulation mm-hmm. for until like uh, this morning, in fact. Oh. I only suddenly, I was in the shower and I was like, wait a minute, that simulation reminds me of the dance scene from Shall We Dance? And, and then I matched them and it fit perfectly. And I was like, 
I guess there you could say the, uh, the stars aligned yeah, for the that one. Yeah, the stars aligned for that one. And it was a fantastic, you know, match. Because that simulation's done by, you know, Thomas and mm-hmm. his and yes, Ursula and stuff. And then I just put this together and I was like, that matches perfectly. And That's I was, so beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was and sort of inspired for kind of science. Yeah. So and also it was connecting the two things that you love. Yeah, dance we and science. Exactly, exactly. dancing so and science, astronomy. Because yeah. as you said in your talk too, wanted to be an astronomer since you were very young. Oh yeah, since I was young and I just quite didn't know how to do it because I I mean like I said I also come from a more culturally reserved part of the world and yeah, so it was an interesting journey but I think the I think the motto the whole time was just keep going. Yeah. You know, just, just keep going and we'll be fine. I love that. And um, yeah, so ups downs just keep going forward. That's that's yeah, the, the direction. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> good, good, good. Now, what would you say was the best part about Pint of Science tonight? Look, I think it was the energy and, you know, at the end of it, for me, I mean, the whole part was great, but I think when I finished the talk and everybody, you know, there was this resonation of energy saying, great, and we all, you know, enjoyed it. I think that was the most satiating part of it because, you know, when you put your effort into something and you know that people take something away because it's mm. time and time is so precious for everyone. And you kind of want them to enjoy it. So for me, I felt good that they enjoyed the time that I took from them. So that mm-hmm. was good. And uh, having you guys really friendly and Jess and um, you know everybody else was just it was a great atmosphere. It really was, it was good wasn't energy. it? Everyone was there for science. Yeah. It's just such and an incredible feeling. Yeah, and, and of course, the, I, mean, I don't drink beer, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it is, <laughs> it's yes, a very attractive looking the, the, can. The, 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 it sure is. I'm yeah. going to keep it. I'm going to keep it yeah. just for... I took a can just to keep it. <laughs> 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 I'm like, I'll have a beer, thanks. Yes, perfect. But, you know, perfect. So just briefly, can you tell us a bit again about the object or the kind of a special kind of objects that you discovered that you were discussing in your presentation? Yeah, so, you know, my research is focused on understanding the how the elements make, uh, how the stars make the elements, sorry. So this is, un- we know that stars are the alchemists, but my science is about understanding the alchemy. And to do this, I look at a very brief phase of stellar evolution, like I said, when the stars open themselves and say, here, I'm going to open myself to you for about, say, 10,000 years in the stellar life, which is quite short. And then in that particular phase, you can reach that part of the photosphere when you can actually detect these elements. So I was searching for stellar fossils, and we know that some stars are in binaries and stuff. But during my understanding of these binaries, I realized that not all stars are old binaries, some of them are actually young binaries, and they haven't even crossed the second giant phase. They actually end their lives before they make elements like carbon and stuff. And we only knew that that, that, that discovery because we're studying stars in the Magellanic Clouds, and these are systems for which we know accurate distances. Now, this might seem a bit abstract, but if you know accurate distance to something, you know its luminosity, how bright it really is. Not its apparent magnitude, but its real luminosity. And if you know its luminosity, then you know its mass and so on. So based on this very important parameter, I was able to say that these stars have actually died young. I mean, they're, you know, interacted in the binarity much younger than the older stars. I guess you could say, live fast, die young, think stars do it well. Something like that, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you know, and the reason we couldn't make this discovery beforehand was because we were always studying objects in our galaxy, and so far, it's like, you know, when it's hard to find a distance to a system in our own galaxy, now we can, of course, with Gaia, but still not very accurately for our systems, 
but for the, those systems it wasn't so possible because it's like you're sitting in a pizza and you're trying to estimate the distance to other things in that same pizza. It's yeah. hard. You don't have a scale. Mm. But if you're sitting in one pizza, you're a pepperoni in a pizza, and you're looking at a pepperoni in another pizza, then you know the distance relative to you because... That you know, is a great analogy. I think I'm going to get it <laughs> for, for my... For my <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, uh, the Magellanic Clouds really gave us that portal to get luminosities of stars before Gaia survey came out. And then knowing the luminosities told us that these stars truncate their lives much earlier than the other stars. And then putting a bit of physics together, we're like, wait a minute, these stars die younger. And what makes them die younger is their binarity. So, and I would like to stress the importance of the discovery and all of that because it is very important to understand how stars are producing the different elements, to right. understand chemical evolution of the universe. Many times, particularly from my background, studying galaxies and chemical evolution of galaxies, well, we are taking elements formed by granted just with little yeah. uh, recipes that should be based in all these kind of discoveries. Yeah. So yeah. that will change also the way of understanding how galaxies are evolving and getting the different chemical elements right. as yeah. the cosmic time is evolving. Actually, I'm not, I, I don't know. I think it's okay to say, but I am giving a Occam's Razor's show on this topic in June. So people are interested, you know. Um, oh, definitely. I don't know when. They, they plan to apparently make it into some sort of a podcast show, but I'm not very sure. But it's for Vivid Sydney. Mm -hmm. I think Angel, you might. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Angel knows all the outreach events. Like can, can, try to. Unfortunately, <laughs> this year um, we will not be having our our usual yeah. event for Vivid Sydney because the deadline for applying for the events uh, was when I was still sick. So I was already too late when I returned to work. But anyway, I don't want to say anything else about that. <laughs> I come back. Okay. Um, one final. One question. final question, please. Okay. What is your favorite object to look at in the night sky? With a telescope, with binoculars, anything. Oh my God! This is tough. It's the hardest question. Your babies, right? Okay. Um, I think my most favorite would be un. Okay. Wait. This is a hard one. So let me think about this. Um. Well, I think it would be uh the Scorpio constellation, and I have a story about. I mean, the whole Scorpio. Yeah. And I have a story about this because um. I remember very vividly, I got into astronomy because of my granddad. Like I said, I was 13 and I played with his sextant and his telescope because he's a sailor. So we would, when he's in land for the six months, he'd take me onto the terrace and in the evenings we'd pretend like we were in the ocean. And he'd say, okay, we've lost the way, find the south, southern star and let's get to the horizon. And, you know, we play these games. And we'd often look at the Scorpion constellation and it looked like a question mark a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, when I see that, I always think of him and it's a bit emotional, but it's not the most interesting constellation in the sky. Well, I think, I it, think is one of the yeah, it is one yeah, of the best. Yeah, it is. And actually one of the very few constellations that you can actually say, okay, it is an Scorpio. It is Scorpio, <laughs> it exactly. Is, it is so I Scorpio. think that... I mean, I know it's, yeah, there's fascinating objects in the sky, but I have an emotional attachment to this. And I, I think love that. And I perfectly fine, understandable, so, yeah, absolutely it. amazing. <laughs> so it is actually, even you don't need a telescope, binoculars, no, or any kind of instrument. Look, look there. Look, that's a 
Stellar and, Scorpion. And if you can go to a dark place in a moonless yeah. night, mm -hmm. you can yeah. really enjoy the Milky Way crossing also right. in the Scorpio. So you're talking so about Andromeda, the quiz, I thought, you yeah. know, where Andromeda will eventually merge with the galaxy. Of course. You yeah. know, it's going to look fantastic in the sky. Well, it's like we live for the next four billion years oh. to yeah, see it. Yeah, we have to wait for three and a half, you four know. billion years. Anyway, anyway. well... Thank you very much thank for coming to Final Science and participating and in our podcast. Thank you guys, I'm so thank happy you to be podcasted. So good. <laughs> Yippee. How great is Davika? Ah, oh, definitely. And Absolutely. I love I love that her favorite object to look at in, in the night sky is not just one single object, but it's a collection of objects that of course make up the constellation Scorpio. Uh, yes, That's... and I and I think that we are uh, we are not going to have a proper WhatsApp in mm -hmm. this in this episode. Uh, I will suggest that we can use Scorpio mm -hmm. from Devika and whatever whatever Sarah Sarah mm -hmm. is talking about for the WhatsApp. Yes, this, this so, episode. And it's really easy to see at the moment. It's very high up in the east. After the sun goes down, you can see the beautiful stretching tail of the scorpion and the the beautiful Antares, the heart of the scorpion. It really just is a great constellation. It's actually one of the first constellations I was ever shown as well. Yeah, in the beca night sky. because it is one of the best constellations in the it sky is. that you can actually identify as mm. a Scorpio. You can. It's very easy, and it's actually it actually looks like a scorpion, too. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to uh, Sagittarius, that looks like a teapot. It is a teapot. It is a teapot. It is a teapot. Yeah. <laughs> if you look closely, well, it, it, you don't have to look closely. Just look around a Scorpio, and you will realize that a bit to the east, you will find a very bright star. Which we will come back to later. Okay, yes. Good point. But um, then, to have a bit of fun, we also had a bit of trivia on the night. And we thought we'd share a bit of the trivia with you guys today as well. Let us know how you go with the answers. Yes, it will be a bit of editing, just again for helping, I think, you guys listening to this episode. And the typical game in the pubs, it is called the Head and Tails. Yep. So if you think it's true, you would put your hands in your heads. If you thought it was false, you would put your hands on your tail. Okay, and we, it was a very interesting, <laughs> very interesting time. Let's go for it. So yes, we'll go straight from trivia into introducing Sarah on the night and then into a bit of Sarah's talk, a few snippets from Sarah's talk. Then, of course, we'll be back again here to give our comments and then we'll continue on from there into her interview. Mm -hmm. So please enjoy trivia. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everyone, officially. Okay, how's everyone feeling? Everyone pinted up? Excellent. All right, but what we're really all here for is some trivia. Who is ready for trivia? Excellent. So I need you all to stand up. So everyone can play on this one, even our organizers, volunteers, that I will introduce them later. And not only uh, astronomers are you going to play too, because these are going to be all astronomy questions. Ha 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 ha. So first things first, just to let you all know, heads is true, tails is false. When you get a question wrong, I'm sorry, you are eliminated and you must sit down. The last person standing gets a lovely pint, pint of science. A, a pint. We get a pint, get a pint glass. <laughs> Just the glass. Just the glass. Just the glass. Okay, I'm going to start with the first question. First question incoming. First question, so please pay attention to this. The moon is larger than the largest world planet in the solar system. True or false? 
What do you think? How are they going? Uh, Who's playing? I think, I think they've got it. The trues have it. Yeah, yeah. very well. Huh? You may stand up. If you say false, sit down. Okay, next question comes from me, also about the moon. True or false? There are three golf balls on the moon. Are we all in? I think that this, even the astronomers don't know. Even the astronomers don't I, I, know? I didn't know. I didn't know till you told me. Ah, well, well. I'm sorry, everyone, but if you have false, you are correct. There are only. Wait for it, wait for it. There are only two. two because there are two. How many do we have left? How many? A couple? Okay, good, good. I was worried that we still. We wanted to everyone too. Okay. Let's continue in the solar system. Another question, there we go. The Earth and Jupiter moon Io are the only two bodies in the solar system that have active volcanoes. True or false? The answer it is false. <laughs> Let me give the explanation, please. Let me give the explanation because we also know that there are active volcanoes in Neptune moon Triton as seen by Voyager 2, and more importantly, amazing images that the Cassini spacecraft took of the little moon Enceladus around Saturn. So these are the four, four places that we know for sure that are active volcanoes. Perhaps, perhaps, there are also active volcanoes in Mars, Venus, and Europa, a moon of Jupiter. But we don't know it yet. Here we go. Okay, show of hands who we have left. We still have a couple. Excellent. All right, well done, everyone. Okay, so the next question is... True or false? Jupiter's great red spot is larger than the Earth. Damn it! That was an easy one. That was an easy one. We need to draw this out. We need to too many people too quickly. It is true. It is currently 1.3 times larger than the size of the Earth, and it's but unraveling. As it has been seen during the last couple of days, in the last few hours, it is changing very quickly. We might be losing the and red spot. And we might be even losing it. So if you have a chance of looking Jupiter through a telescope in the next few days, do it because perhaps we are missing the big red dot spot in Jupiter soon. Okay, next Who is question. left? Who is left? Everyone that was still alive. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, well, some few of them. Okay, let's go a bit more farther away. The Andromeda galaxy that lies at 2.5 million light years away from us can be seen with the naked eye under very dark skies. True or false? It is true. So, it is true. For many people, it is the most distant object that they can see with their naked eye. Although, if you have a very good sight, you can even see the triangular galaxy, which lies at 2.7 million light years away, and you can see with your naked eye too. Okay, next question. The very center of the Sun-Jupiter system is not inside the Sun. So, for those who don't know what very center is, or maybe if you may not know what the very center is, the center of rotation of the Sun-Jupiter system is not inside the Sun. True or false? 
It is true. It is true. The center of rotation of the sun, Jupiter system, is about 80,000 kilometers out from the surface of the sun. So technically, Jupiter makes the sun bubble. So who is left? How many? Only one? Only you? No. Do we? Yes? No, we're still here. We're still here. <laughs> I think we are going to have unknown astronomy because we have an astronomer here, so that is not fair. Let me look for... Where do we have the rest of the questions? I don't know what is that. No, I can I can ask, but I don't know what is that. Okay, I'm going to ask, although I don't know what is... Ah, that is a person. So I didn't know who Betty White. Betty White, I didn't know who that person was. But the, the, the question here is Betty White is older than the sliced bread. Sliced bread. The sliced bread. Betty White is older than the sliced bread. True or false? It's true! <laughs> anyway, please come here to collect your prize. Uh, a clap for the winner. Well done! Okay, now I know we've had lots of fun with trivia and a bit of controversy with trivia as well. But it is time to invite our second speaker of the night, the wonderful Dr. Sarah Reeves. She received her PhD in astronomy at the University of Sydney in 2016. She spent five years as astronomy guide at Sydney Observatory, where on the first night that I worked there, she was um, a bit grumpy, but she's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> she's lovely in person, I swear. Um, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. You don't get to use the other fact now. I'll use oh, no, I'm definitely going to use the other I fact. I know it is your birthday, but come on. I'm sorry. <laughs> another little fun fact about Sarah. She's the only person to attend a physics lecture and then leave needing stitches. <laughs> okay, but she is... She's a science curator at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, and she's going to tell us what is an astronomer doing in a museum. Please welcome Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. And just as I was finishing my thesis, a job came up uh, at the museum, an assistant curator's position, uh, and that's where I have been for the last three and a bit years ever since. So, a little bit about the museum. Um, it's actually three sites, so uh, you guys probably know of Sydney Observatory, you've probably heard of the Powerhouse. Uh, they're two of our sites. The one you might not have heard of is something called the Museum's Discovery Centre at Castle Hill. Uh, and that's where we keep all of our really big objects. It's, it's not really uh, the subject of today's talk, but we've got things like buses and planes and trains there, so we have the ability to store some very, very big things. This is uh, the collection store under the museum in Ultimo. Uh, it's, it's a collection of about 500,000 objects altogether. Um, so if you've been to the museum, it's a, it's a big place, but actually only about 3% of our collection are on display at any one time, and the rest uh, is in storage. Uh, and my job as a, as a curator is basically to continue to acquire things into that collection that we are agreeing to preserve uh, for future generations because we feel that they have um, some really important significance that should be documented. Um, and so we actually, as a museum, we cover a broad range of things. 
Um, but obviously my work fills into the physical sciences, so astronomy and space mostly, uh, and other things from time to time. So when objects come into the store, it's actually a climate-controlled environment, so we keep the humidity very low. That's to stop things from deteriorating. Um, and this here is our special speedo storage. <laughs> so we have a, a large collection of speedos, they're part of our fashion collection, uh, and we discovered that certain speedo swimsuits, just from a couple of years in the 1980s, were deteriorating really quickly. Um, and so we basically have put them in the fridge um, to stop the elastic disintegrating and then sort of turning into mush. Um, and if you want to know more about the collection, uh, you can actually explore it through our website. So it's a really fun job uh, curating, uh, bringing things into uh, the collection. Uh, and one of the things that we have to do uh, when we work on exhibitions, for example, is we have to do a risk assessment. And so this is one for, pulled out a couple of statements from uh, an exhibition that I'm working on at the moment, and they're really, really boring. So I said, oh, exhibition budget might increase due to external, oh, that's gone off the screen, due to external factors, uh, and it'll mean that the project is affected somehow. This was my contribution to the risk assessment. I thought I'd just spice things up a little bit. I said it might be difficult to get the exhibition to contain enough genuine space technology because too much of it is in orbit while it's already burnt up on re-entry. I don't think that our dominance team have ever seen that in a risk assessment before. I just have to keep them on their toes sometimes. But, but it's true. It's very true. So this is one of the problems with collecting space paraphernalia is so much of it is physically unreachable or gets destroyed on its way back to Earth. Um, and as you guys saw as well, with the way that we do in astronomy now, it's not just one person peering through a telescope. That sounds very romantic, but that's not how it happens anymore. So I wanted to share with you a couple of things that I have recently acquired into the collection. This was one that I was very, very excited about. So a small startup called CubeRider, uh, started by two undergraduate engineering students. They approached the museum and they said, uh, I didn't know about this beforehand. They said, we put Australia's first payload, first piece of cargo, onto the International Space Station. Uh, and its time up there is coming to an end, and we would like to bring it back to Earth, but the bill is going to be about $15,000. Um, and so as a museum, we recognise that Australia's first uh, payload to the International Space Station was a pretty cool thing. Uh, and we were thankfully able to help them out through our museum's annual appeal and basically gather the funds to bring this back down to Earth. So it's not something that we can do all the time, but this one was very little, about the size uh, of, of one of these drinking glasses, and so we were able to bring it back down to Earth. Uh, what was really cool, what partly excited me about this, uh, was that this, uh, so the payload was basically a Raspberry Pi computer, if you guys know what that is, a very simple single board computer, uh, and it was actually used to conduct science experiments run by high school students. So as well as being uh, the first time that we had ever put anything on the space station, as well as being put up there by two undergraduate students running their own company, it was also used by high school students around the country to conduct their own science experiments, which I thought was really cool. Another thing we recently acquired, so this is something called the Murchison Wide Field Array. It's a very funny looking telescope. We actually call these antennas spiders. 
um, and you can kind of see why. But in fact, there's hundreds and hundreds of these kind of uh, networks of spiders spread over the West Australian desert. Uh, and we were lucky enough that they had, after they finished building the telescope, they had a few spares, some engineering spares left over, uh, and so we were able to acquire four of them into the collection and keep two for doing demonstrations. So now when people come to the museum, we can actually do demonstrations for them of how we use these to observe the sky, or we can turn them into uh, a radio receiver, tune into regular FM radio. <laughs> So what happens to an object once it comes into the collection? Well, it's really hard when you have 500,000 objects in a basement the size of a football field. So I'm sure everyone here has had the experience of putting their phone down, putting their keys down, uh, and forgetting where they put them. You can't do that in a museum. If you do that, you can literally misplace an object wherever it might be years or even decades before someone discovers it again, even if you just put it down, you know, one, one shelf, one place to the right. Uh, and so actually what happens, these aren't space objects, uh, but when an object comes into the collection, we give it a tag, we give it what's called a registration number, so this guy is H4469, uh, there are even worse telephone numbers these days. And we actually put the number on there so that if it's ever separated from its tag, we can identify it again. And then we give it a location. We don't just say, like, oh, it's in the basement. We say it's on this bay of this shelf, of, like, and we give it a specific location. We single that little label there and that label there, and you probably can't see the rest of them, but every single shelf there actually has a label and a specified location and every object on it is associated to that particular shelf uh, in our collection database. So that is how, with 500,000 objects, we keep track of each and every one of them and make sure we know where they are at all times and that we're keeping them safe um, in the future. That was a really interesting talk, I will say. It was, wasn't it? It was different to the kind of talks I would expect for this kind of event. Because usually it is a bit more a researcher or someone really talking about how discovery, astronomy in particular. That's right, like, actual, like scientific... astronomy topics and whatnot. But on the other hand, this kind of talks and Sarah's talk in particular, it is opening you how important it is to keep and to have the memory of the things that have been used for understanding the universe, let's say that way, of the things that have made us the way we are. That's right, and, and remembering the history. And it, I find it really interesting and really good in a way to actually promote science communication because it, it is a form of science communication working in a museum and creating these particular exhibits for people to go to the museum and learn about them for themselves. It's just a really interesting way to see how that is actually, uh, how the foundation is created and also how they actually get some of the objects. That yeah, was really interesting. That was really, really interesting. Mm. Also, all related to space, astronomy, when she was talking about, well, we really want to try to get the very first instrument that was in the International Space Station that was proposed by, I think it was a student from from, mm. from, was from, the first, from, from the Australia. first Australian instrument to be put on the space station and and they were was. just going to get rid of it in i don't know in which way it's going to burn up in the atmosphere somewhere possibly uh, yeah, exactly, yeah exactly that 
and they have to try to get the money. That was not that much when you compare... Compared to how much it costs to put something into space. (laughs) Exactly. Mm. And bringing it from the US to Australia. And they managed to to get it. Mm. That is something that I would have never thought about that. And and it is important that uh, people understand the effort Mm. and how important it is to keep these little things for the future. That's right. For for ourselves, for understanding better the history, but for the future generations to be able to get... To, like, to inspire the, them, yes, isn't inspire it? inspire them mm. and, and the sense of the history, how we made it. Mm. And how we, yeah, like like you said, how we got to where we are today. Exactly. Because we, we are nothing without... We, we, we build... It's like the um, saying goes, like, we build on the shoulders of giants. Because it is completely true. Exactly. For me, it will be really, really sad if this happened in the future that the Hubble Space Telescope is destroyed. Mm, it that would happen. be tragic. It, uh, it we might, know it, it probably will happen. Because it is what it had happened to many other satellites. Mm, and it's really hard to get things back down from space safely. Yeah, but imagine how much the Hubble Space Telescope is providing to everybody. I'm not mm. talking about scientists. I'm also talking about the general public. Yes, and all those fantastic photos it takes. So... I know that when you're looking into the future, I'm talking about a century or even a millennia if we still exist, the appreciation that you have that we have this satellite of this thing that it was going to be destroyed, it will cost money. Mm-hmm. But in the long term, it will be a very good asset to have. It will. But we can say whatever we want. We are not deciding Unfortunately, no, we're not, we're not part of the committee that decides what happens, what is the ultimate fate of these beautiful, beautiful instruments that unfortunately we may never see again. That is the point of connecting with Sarah's talk about her passion, about saving these things, about mm. showing these items to understand them, to write about them, to know their history and so on. And the importance that that has for communicating to everyone and something like a museum. Mm. So that is why I'm still thinking that it was great to have this talk here. Yeah, it was fantastic. And it was, like we said, it was a different look on astronomy, a different perspective, which is fantastic. <laughs> but now here is an interview, the interview with Sarah. Okay, please enjoy this. She is fantastic. And I have to mention, we have worked together for a very long time. We worked together at the Sydney Observatory and she's just fantastic. Yeah, I, so, think, I think that that was also mentioned in the introduction when you I think it was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy our interview with Sarah. Had you enjoyed it? It was fantastic. Yeah, it was it was not your usual audience. Who would have known? It's like a lot more exciting than speaking to the museum crowd. Did you find that people laughed more because they had pints? Or do you reckon they would have laughed the exact same? I, with your I think they definitely laughed more because of the pints, <laughs> for sure. I must say, your physicist joke was hilarious. My entire <laughs> table was just cackling for like five minutes afterwards. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> what was your most favorite part about tonight? Oh, I just think it's like seeing all these people coming out, spending their Wednesday evening to hear about science. Like, you know, it's it's really fantastic that people are obviously interested in science and want to hear about it. And they were a fantastic audience. They were delightful. Awesome. No, I have been really, really good. I have learned some few things because I really didn't know exactly what an astronomer was doing in a museum. I have a couple of ideas, but not that much. I was quite interested about, you know, how you keep all the collections and all huge number of items that you have in, in the collection. Yeah, it's a massive collection. We're very lucky. 
I'm surprised I've never seen the collection before, and I've never known that there was this entire underbelly of the museum. That there's that's where everything's kept. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can actually you can visit uh, the uh, the open display at Castle Hill, the museum's discovery centre. So that shows you where we keep our biggest objects and you can see the way that we really store things rather than on exhibition um, and it is actually possible for the public to come and visit our collection store at Ultimo if they want to. Can you also see the speedos? You can see the speedos. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay, <what? I'm> <laughs> the speedo fridge. <laughs> yeah. Now I know someone next to me was asking uh, are Tony Abbott speedos in that collection no. as well? No, they're not. We wouldn't do Come that. Come on. <laughs> Don't ask anything about that, please, Kerstin. What, no. what is your favorite astronomy or space-related item? In the collection? That's really hard. I, I think Cube Rider holds a special place for me. It was one of my first acquisitions and first Australian payload to the International Space Station is pretty special for me. Um, but if I can diverge from space and astronomy for a second, we actually have a perfect silicon sphere in the collection. Uh, so not space related at all, but very cool and very, very shiny. And very, very good for the uh, OCD person. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. So you completed your PhD three, four years ago? Uh, yes, 2016. Okay, and what was that about? You said so, something, but not that much. <laughs> so, so my thesis title, uh, which is totally unintelligible, was H1 Emission and Absorption Line Studies of Nearby Gas-Rich Galaxies. It's a bit of a mouthful. Basically, <laughs> I, I was I studying... I like it, I like yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it really rolls off the tongue. No, so basically what I was studying was how galaxies uh, grow and evolve over billions of years uh, using radio telescopes like the DISH uh, at Parkes uh, to study not the stars, but actually the hydrogen gas around them, which is what fuels those stars throughout their lifetime uh, and shows us, it reveals hidden secrets about how those galaxies are evolving. Mm, it, it was really, really nice. Yes. Very nice. Uh, I think that I have already met you around there at CSI. Or... Yeah, you would have. Yeah, it was that time. Mm. Okay, I think one last question for Sarah. Mm. What is your favorite astronomical object to look at through a telescope? Uh, Jupiter. I know everybody loves Saturn. I know it's the crowd pleaser and everyone loves it, but for me, Jupiter every time. To be able to see those tiny little moons, um, which are actually many, many times the size of our own moon, um, but just so much further away. To see them orbiting around Jupiter, that you can go out from one night to another and see that they have actually changed in the position uh, around Jupiter. You know, proving that Galileo was right more than 400 years ago, to me, that's, that's it. That is beautiful. Um, I am enthralled by your answer there, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks Thank very you. much, guys. Cheers. And now, Angel, we can talk about what you almost spoiled. <laughs> that bright star-looking thing is, of course, Jupiter, which is Sarah's favourite object. And I totally agree with her. It is just beautiful to look at. You can see the colourful bands through a telescope, sometimes a great red spot. But I have to mention, the great red spot... It's unraveling. We talked mm. a bit during the quiz mm -hmm. because it was one of the questions. That's right. And I have been following the news about what is happening in the Great Red Spot in Jupiter. And, and, and it is really, really interesting because even amateur astronomers that they already have 
special filters, in mm -hmm. particular methane filters, mm. that are able to see the streamers that are coming at the end of the great red spot. Oh. The other thing it is that we are not completely sure if it is going to disappear or not. It still be. It's, it's really just a wait and see, yeah. just to watch and see what happens. What it really seems it is that it was very elongated in the past, and that that mm. is why it was two and a half, three times the size of the Earth, and mm -hmm. now it is only one point three, as you mm. very well pointed out. As we learned in the uh, quiz. But it's still a bit elongated, and it seems that it's going to be rounded, and that is the number of 2040. So the, 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 the year, in the year 2040, if it continues that way, it will be smaller mm -hmm. and rounded, right. but still be visible. Ah, well, still that's Still be visible. That's exciting. Perhaps it will be harder for us. Mm. Because it is a smaller. Of course. And the other thing that had happened with the Great Red Spot, it is that they have been a slightly changing colors. So it was mm. very vivid red in the past, and mm -hmm. it have been a bit more, a bit more pale, orange, yes, and it coming again. So it is uh, active because the atmosphere of Jupiter is very active. Of course. And contributions by amateur astronomers are really helping professional astronomers to try to understand better the dynamics of the atmosphere of Jupiter. Mm. Even publishing papers. That's right. Yes. What a great object to look at in the night sky. So thank you, Sarah, for suggesting that. It is a fantastic, fantastic thing and really easy to see. And as I almost said that before, it is... A little bit further, further down, down from and Scorpio. from Scorpio. From Scorpio. So if you looked to a Scorpio in the, uh, a bit of half after the sunset, after the sun's you, will, you will see the constellation and suddenly... A very bright star will it appear. It is unmissable. You, you will not miss it. You yes. will not miss it. Like it's literally the brightest thing in the night sky, sands the moon. Definitely. Also yeah. because on the 10th of June, just in uh, 10 days, basically, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it will reach opposition. So Ooh. that is the moment in which... Uh, it is closest. Closest to the Earth. Mm -hmm. Biggest, brightest. Biggest, brightest, and the best, particularly for the Southern Hemisphere observers. Ah. Because it is in Scorpio, mm. and it is a south constellation. That's right. An Austral constellation. So, um, actually, my friends and amateur astronomers from the Northern Hemisphere were complaining that Jupiter, even in the middle of the night, was still not high enough to observe with a better quality. Because the lower an object is in the sky, the lower quality you have because of all the movement in our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. What is called the seeing. The lower you lo are, the, lo the, less the harder you are, the seeing the, 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 is. Yeah. So they were complaining that they were not able to get the best image that they could. And actually the best images that we have seen from Jupiter and from this phenomena happening at the moment mm -hmm. have been all taken from Australia, from Chile, from South Africa, from the South Hemisphere. Just, just proves that the Southern Hemisphere is clearly better. It is, it is, it is. But remember that many people at the northern hemisphere they will say, "Well, our hemisphere is also nice." And sometimes, and many things that are happening in the northern hemisphere that they can only be seen from there and not from here. That's that's very fair. That's and very that fair. is also. I'm yeah. also quite biased because you know I've only really ever been to the southern hemisphere. I've only been to the northern hemisphere once. You should once just just to America, yeah. And um, even then, it was south, south, not South America, but south of Maine. Uh, Northern America. But all this conversation, it is one of the many other proofs that we have about how the Earth, it is not a flat thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have to say it. I have to say it. Oh, no. Um, so, uh, connecting what Sarah was talking about, uh, trying to recover 
this uh, first experiment from the International Space Station. And even when other small mini satellites are launched from Australia and trying to recover those, mm -hmm. I think the, for wrapping up this episode and changing completely the topic from Python science, we yes. wanted to at least... We've, we've been holding this in for the entire episode and we need to let it out. We are very mad. Very, very, very mad. We're very scared of what's going to happen. If you follow us in Twitter, you have seen that 90, 95% of all our tweets during the last week mm. have been about the SpaceX Starlink mm. project. Mm. Uh, I can see Kirsten melting her face at the moment. There's, there's, no. No. I don't, I don't like this at all. It is not good. Oh, Starlink. Where to begin? Uh, I think it deserves a proper analysis. Mm -hmm. So we perhaps does. we should wait for a next episode mm. to really provide all the information and facts. Yes. But when I have said that, we can briefly mention that we are very mad mm -hmm. because it is not good. And just... My my gripe with this is just the fact that there's so much misinformation being put out there by Elon Musk. Even by Elon Musk. Because saying, he mm, he has a huge following. I'm sorry, I get very passionate about this and very very riled up about this because he has a huge following. He has a great influence in society, and he's using it by putting out misinformation and literally. Like, this is worst case scenario, but it's turning millions against astronomers. Not, no, but, but, but that is actually what is happening, particularly because there are many people who are following Elon Musk. Uh, you can say anything bad about Elon Musk of SpaceX. If and not, they are just a whole army. Woo, 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 woo. Exactly, a whole army comes say, for you. It's yeah, just, well, you astronomers, you astronomers, you are only complaining, you are only well. We have talked in this podcast about the huge problem of the light pollution mm -hmm. for. Not only for, I want to make this clear, it is not only for astrophysicists that are in observatories, that not only because the telescopes and the instruments that we build for these telescopes cost plenty, plenty of money, mm -hmm. and we are trying to get the best science from there. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about that. I'm not only talking about amateur astronomers, four of them, that they will not be able to get nice images now, oh, oh, oh. Mm. When, when we know that it's a fact that uh, amateur astronomers who are getting these very nice images that usually are posted in Astronomical Picture of the Day or so, yep. these deep images, they are actually the combination of hundreds, thousands of indi individual frames. And mm -hmm. if you do that, mm. you actually will be able to clean and erase the path or the track of satellites or something like that. Yeah. It is not that. Yeah. I'm talking and I'm concerned about the general public, about the society, mm -hmm. that we are going to miss if that continues that way and we are getting not the 12,000, but 50,000 because mm. there are many other companies that want to do the same. Mm -hmm. There will be many more satellites moving around that the stars that we can see with our naked eye, particularly in a light polluted area. Exactly. Yeah, the, you will see for, in the way that it's going, like you're saying, Angel, you will be seeing more satellites than stars in the night sky. And no, that's terrifying. Nobody has taken this into account. No. And I don't think it would be that difficult, particularly to try to do 
the satellites dark enough to reflect less less light from the sun. And I have to say, there were tweets sent to Elon Musk, and he has said that the Starlink team are going to try and reduce the albedo of these satellites. So there, the, the al- there are a few little wins, but mm-hmm. my gripe, as I said, is with the misinformation, misinformation. he is spewing out into the world. Yes, yes. So as um, these are our main points at the moment. Mm-hmm. Please, please, if you want to know much more about that, follow us. Yes. <laughs> follow us because we are continually uh, tweeting and commenting all this information from um, different organizations. For example, mm-hmm. this very morning, I retweeted the statement that the International Dark Sky Associations have made about the problem with not only Starlink, but for whatever is happening. But and I know that well. other organizations, including the International Astronomical Unions, are preparing some other media releases and mm-hmm. so on. There are many astronomers really concerned about this that have been doing calculations that are very, very, very scary. And very compelling, too. Yes, definitely. They are, they are. And these plots are making the point that perhaps someone has not thought about that in the past or have Mm. not contacted astronomers. Mm -hmm. Follow us to keep the information and we will definitely explore and give... We will. We will update you with information when we we hear it, when we (laughs) absorb it ourselves. And... In talking about this, we will release another episode not two weeks from now, but next week. Yes. We will release an episode next Friday. Okay, so Friday the 7th. 7th, yes. We will release another episode not two weeks from now, but on Friday the 7th of June. We will talk about satellites, we will talk about these things and actually give you a comprehensive understanding of why we are so riled up by, about this and why we are so passionate about this. Honestly, I'm impressed. I've never been this, uh, like, I'm always passionate, of course, but I've never been this anti-passionate about something and never been that, like, this heated on the podcast. This is, this is, a, this is a new, this is a new y- thing for us. That is a new thing for, for you, but I have had the same experience that you are having at the moment mm. when I was more or less your age when the problem of the light pollution was really a thing. Yeah. It was when many changes in the illumination of the cities all around the world, including in, in Europe and in Spain, were happening, and we have these big packets of lights pointing to the sky, to the stars. And, and I remember that very well because when I was 15 and 16 years old and I was learning amateur astronomy, usually in, in summertime in the cottage that our family had in the mountain ranges from Cordoba, 15 kilometers only from the city center. And okay, we have the glow of the of the of, of the city, mm. but it was very pristine sky to see perfectly well the Milky Way. Oh. And in five, six years, in five, six years, that completely changed. Wow. To five to six years. Yes, that completely changed. That, that is such a short amount that of time. Was, uh, uh, about when I was your age. Wow. When I when when it was uh, I was fifteen, sixteen, it was perfect. And then when I turned twenty, twenty one, twenty two, that was already in the uni, mm. and I was going back in summer to do what I'm passionate about, to my amateur astronomy and so mm. on. And I was depressed oh. about how much the light pollution was affecting that and how was almost impossible to fight with it, even though we were preparing some kind of information 
to the politicians at the end of the day and to the citizens mm -hmm. just to try them to understand that it is not that we poor astronomers are not able to see the sky. Mm -hmm. It is the it's everyone. It is the huge amount of money that you are losing because you are not illuminating well that you are creating a false security mm -hmm. and have, that have been shown in scientific reports that illuminating more the streets are not equivalent to that they're going to be safer. Mm -hmm. It is shown. It yep. is actually the other way around. Mm. And that we are losing this one of the best things that we have, which is the night sky. It's just tragic, isn't it? Is, it? it is tragic. Absolutely tragic. I think we should bring ourselves back down yes, now yes. and wrap up the episode because we will talk about this more next week. Yes. Um, but, oh... I hope you enjoyed our sip of science. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, yes, right, right. We, we've ended on a bit of a on a sad note, but we really do hope you've enjoyed uh, today's episode. Yes, because it, it was a lot. Of, it, it was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed it, particularly myself, because I was uh, surrounded by very young people around everywhere. Mm. <laughs> I think I was the older one in the room almost. <laughs> And, and it was definitely great to have uh, Devika and Sarah talking about their jobs. And as I also said in the introduction, having you as co-host of the event, so three great female astronomers doing very interesting presentations. So again, thank you all for listening to today's episode. We will be back next week with our satellite episode coming to you via satellite, I guess, if you have satellite Wi-Fi. Anyway, that was a bad joke. Um, Don't forget ooh. to provide your feedback or yes. your comments or what do you think particularly about the Starlink mm. and what is happening with all these satellites. Any thoughts that you have that would be very valuable for us to include in the next episode. Yes. Oh, and let us know how you went with the trivia questions. Ah, yes, of course. How many questions did you know? <laughs> and how many golf balls are on the moon, guys? Ah, now we know that there are only two. And, and, and you should know this if you listen to the episodes because we talked about this yes, yes, yes. a couple of episodes ago. I think that if they have done their job and they have listened to all our episodes, I think that they should be able to get all the answers. You should be able to. Hmm. But anyway, for now, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.